Christopher Searcy was playing basketball on a day like this in May in 1998 with his friends, and then he got shot in the abdomen. His friends wanted to care of him, responded, and they carried Christopher to the ER about 30 feet short of the ER door. They ran in and asked the ER personnel to come out and help their friend. The ER personnel recited a policy saying they cannot help anyone unless they're brought into the building. The friends have been covered in blood. They're exhausted. They're pleading, please help our friend. He's just, you can see him. He's 30 feet out the door. Please come, and they're out there, and they are not bringing him in. They're trying to carefully, they call for an ambulance and a medic 30 feet from the ER door. After the crowd of people began pleading for them, carry him in, carry him in. Eventually the police carry him in. But of course by then, it's too late. Maybe they could have saved him, maybe they could not. Who knows? But they cited a policy and it was too late. Often, you and I, we get legalistic and we insist on the letter of our laws, and the needs of others are overlooked. By holding on to a hospital policy and principle, the royal law of love was ignored and neglected. You can think about maybe times in your life when there's policies and there's principles that have helped you ignore the royal law of love. And when I talk about the royal law of love, I mean God's royal law of love. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says it this way, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. Haddon Robinson, my uh, Jesse and I's actually a uh, professor who taught us how to preach. Uh, he, this is what he said about legalism. He says, legalism is when the application of a principle is given all the force of the principle itself. Another way of saying that is legalism is taking a specific application of the law or principle and giving it the full force of the law, therefore making the application the law itself. What is the law? What is the law? I mean, the answer we ought to know, the law is the character of God. That the Ten Commandments, this, this moral law that's given, is, the, is who God is. It's not primarily a list of do's and don'ts, although certainly describes what you ought not to do and what you ought to do, but it is primarily a characteristic of something that says this is set apart, this is radically different, and says when God reveals the Ten Commandments, he's saying, hey, this is Israel, this is what you're not, and this is what I am. It is his character. The Ten Commandments are a revelation of who God is. It is actually a gift. It is actually an act of grace that the law is given and described because God is revealing who he is to a people that are not that. 
the first five books of the Old Testament is called the Torah or the law itself. And so this gets a little bit confusing because we have all these different terms when we say the law, we talk about the, the moral law, we talk about law, we talk about the Torah, or the first five books, and then we talk about in there, there's the ceremonial laws, there, there is um, circumstantial law, there is case law, there's all these different kinds of laws. But in the Torah, the first five books understood as the law as a revelation of who God is primarily. And in Torah, there are actually, right, the Ten Commandments, and there's lots of other commandments. There's like 613 of them. Primarily, all of them are circumstantial or specific case laws applying the moral law to a specific case and to a specific circumstance. This is how you ought to apply it. Those laws, those case laws, are using wisdom to apply God's character to a circumstance. When, we, when we've talked about wisdom before, when we've gone through the book of Ecclesiastes, we've defined wisdom as skillfully living for God. Wisdom is skillfully living for God. Or another way we can apply it here, say it here is, wisdom is applying skillfully the character of God in specific moments and specific circumstances. So when you say it that way, like it takes wisdom in every moment of your life to apply the moral law, which is God's character, to every circumstance and every moment of your life. How do I skillfully live in this way? How do I skillfully live out the character of God, which God is writing on my heart? God is transforming me to be. How do I apply that? There is a long tradition in hermeneutic that Jesus, in, in Judaism, that Jesus applies in his life, in the New Testament, that he applies his character and the law, and he walks the earth wisely. When Jesus, when you hear the stories of Jesus, what he's actually doing is wisely applying the character of God to circumstances, to special moments, to all the things that he's in his life. And he applies that character, and it's revealed to us over and over, this wisdom. The reality, I think, of a way of thinking about your life is it's, it's, it's a faith that is improvised over and over and over again. You, I cannot just sit up here and say, hey, this is how you're supposed to act in every moment and every circumstance. That would be unfaithful to the character of our God because each specific circumstance requires wisdom to apply God's character, and there's lots of different ways that it can be applied. Now, this doesn't give you carte blanche to apply the law any way you want to, or that, hey, it means I can do anything I want. That's not what I'm saying, but it takes wisdom, God-given wisdom, to apply his character. The issue today in the text, or one of the issues in the text today, is legalism. You might be familiar with legalism in your own life. Legalism, right, giving a specific application of the law or of God's character, the full force of the law. We, we might call this a certain way of fundamentalism. Fundament, I believe in fundamentals of the faith, but this fundamentalism, if you're familiar with history at all, fundamentalism comes out of, and they start applying standards and ways of living to every moment, to every circumstance. And any time that you do that, you're going to run into trouble. And you're going to be legalistic. And I get legalism. 
I want rules and laws so I can feel safe. And it's like, look, I, I did my obligation. I fulfilled my requirement. Now I don't have to do any more. And Judaism, just like you and I, the people back then were broken just like you and I, they have a long tradition of interpreting and applying the law in specific circumstances. They understood that the law was given to apply wisely. They have whole books of wisdom in the scriptures. So there's a long tradition. We have this book called the Mishnah, which the Mishnah is a long tradition of, of, of rabbis interpreting the law and applying it to our lives. But they had, a, they had a problem. They were legalists like we're, we were. And so they made rules around the law. And for good reason. They were so worried and concerned that they didn't want to break the moral law that they made rules around it. And they made rules around those rules. So you wouldn't come close to breaking the law. And the problem with it is that they began to think their specific application to the, of the law, it was actually the law. And so then the law expanded and expanded and expanded. They were beginning to think their rules, their application was God's law. That kind of tradition follows us today. We do that same thing over and over again. The context today, as you read this passage, right, is Jesus heals, we read it last week, heals the invalid on the Sabbath, Jesus heals the invalid with his words. Jesus doesn't touch the invalid. He speaks. He tells the invalid, get up, pick up your mat, pick up your bed, and walk. The invalid gets up, picks up his bed, and walks. And the specific issue, the specific law that is the, the issue for today is that Sabbath laws were serious. Sabbath laws, rules, and traditions, and application of the Sabbath law. When we talk about Sabbath, this is a, a big concept which I can't fully explain today, but we can touch on it a little bit. Sabbath is simply means uh, rest. It means ceasing, desisting, or complete rest is understanding how God's Sabbath is. So Sabbath is a kind of sense of complete rest. There's a peace in that Sabbath as well. We can talk about shalom. But in the moral law, we're actually given, right, the Sabbath rules, right, and the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 28 through 11, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, to, to set it apart. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In this character, in this description of the moral law, God actually refers back to creation. So this is why the Sabbath day is given to you. It is a day to be set apart as holy. And And the simple explanation of the Sabbath day is do not do your ordinary work on the seventh day. Six days you have an ordinary work in which you do. On the seventh day, it's not the ceasing of any work 
It's the ceasing of your ordinary work. We find rest in that seventh day of taking a break from the ordinary work. And God models this behavior for us, and he models it after creation story. So let's go look at the creation story and what he says here about Sabbath. In Genesis 2 through 3, and on the seventh day, right, there's six days of creation. I don't know why I did that. There's six days of creation. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, set it apart. Because on, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God has ceased the ordinary work of creation. It's done. And we hear the part of the story, he begins to spend time with his creation, Adam and Eve. There's, there's certainly something he's doing, but he's relational and spending time with them. What's fascinating about, if you read Genesis 1 and 2, in Genesis 1 and 2, there's six days, and in six days, there's always a description that says, and it was night, and it was day, and the day's right, it's over. But on the seventh day, there is no end. There is no description that says it was night, and it was day, and it was over. Because here's the reality. You and I belong in the Sabbath. You and I belong in rest, eternal rest, all the time. That it was what God designed us for. And even in that, right, the labor that God gave us in that rest, in that Sabbath, there was labor, but it wasn't toilsome. It wasn't hard. It was just what we did. We were with God, and we did something. The point is that Sabbath is meant to eventually go on forever. And, and that's actually what we would want to describe what heaven is, is. Heaven is our Sabbath where we find our eternal rest, which is not the cessation of work, but a complete shalom and peace with God. Sin, if you read in the story, sin interrupts God's rest. God's done. There's no sin. He's hanging out with his creation. This is a good time. And then Adam and Eve and humans bring in sin, and then God has to begin a new work and begins to do a recreation. Then you have the whole story of the Bible, but God beginning to work again in a whole different way. I just want you to hold on to that thought for a moment, that God is working on the broken Sabbath. <laughs> That God is, is, is now entering back into a recreation and that God's character is being displayed with justice and faithfulness and mercy towards sin that interrupts the Sabbath. Legalism for God would be God doing his duty to keep the Sabbath. Hey, I'm going to stay restful. You screwed it up. I did my part. I'm not going to do any more. You're on your own. But that's not the law. That's not God's character. God's character is grace and mercy, which begins to reveal us on the seventh day. Immediately when he sinned, he begins to reveal his character to us and says, listen, there's mercy and justice to be done. I'm going to enter into that work, even 
on the Sabbath, even in my rest. God loves us so much that he's willing to go back to work in recreation. The rabbis through the Mishnah have an interpretive tradition of rules around the Sabbath law. And remember, the original understanding of the Sabbath was the cessation of ordinary work, your ordinary work. What you ordinarily do through the six days, do it and do some other work. But these rabbis have then turned into a tradition that they begin to list 39 different categories of what they defined work was. And within those categories, specific things of what they classified as work. And one of those things in which they classified is anything that you carry from one domain to another. That is work. Well, that is really broad, isn't it? What do I carry? Well, I carry my guilt every place I go. Is that work? I mean, so here, the man, the invalid, taking his bed, which certainly is not his work, and carried it on the Sabbath, for them, that actually broke one of the 39 categories. That's you're carrying something from one domain to another. So when we run, read this passage this morning, who broke the Sabbath laws? Who broke the Sabbath laws? Or the traditions of the rabbis? Was it Jesus? Jesus didn't break the Sabbath laws. He didn't break his Sabbath law, and he didn't break the tradition and the Sabbath rules of the rabbis, because he just spoke. I mean, he encouraged Sabbath breaking. He encouraged people to break. He encouraged them, yeah, pick up your mat. It was the invalid who broke the rabbis' traditions and their Sabbath laws. By the Old Testament standard, by the, the strict understanding, the, the simple understanding of the Sabbath law, picking up a mat would not have been an ordinary work. By the tradition of the elders, it certainly would have been. In John 5, 10 through 11, we see this as it goes on. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, right? They confront him. They confront him on his sin and his breaking their Sabbath laws. And this is what he says. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. The man who had just been healed by Jesus, when confronted or being accused of a great sin, according to the rabbis, what does he do? He blames Jesus. But he doesn't even know Jesus' name. The guy who healed me. Think about this. 38 years he has been invalid. Jesus heals them. He doesn't take time. This is not a blind man. He doesn't take time to know who this man is because what does he care about? He cares about himself and his circumstance. Hey, my circumstances changed. I'm all better. Listen, in your relationship with Jesus, what's the most important thing? Who he is or what he does for you? I mean, certainly what he does for you is important, but the most important thing is that he is Lord and God. That man had no desire to know anything about Jesus, not even his name. We know that when Jesus performs miracles, he's not really interested in changing the circumstances. He's interested in people beginning to understand who he is. 
And this man goes and blames Jesus. Jesus finds him in the temple later on. Right? The, the temple, which is the place where people go to encounter God, where they go actually to repent of their sins. And in John 2, we're already told when Jesus goes into the temple that he's already he's flipping tables and he's already declaring himself, I am greater than the temple. Why is he greater than the temple? Because he is God. The temple is just a place where people go to encounter God. Wherever Jesus is, people are encountering God. The church, we become his temple on earth where people go to encounter him. He's greater to the temple because he's the actual presence of God. I don't know if you know this or not, but repentance is our way of life or ought to be our way of life. Every day and every moment, and actually Jesus models this in the New Testament, how to live repently, how to, how to live out repentance in your life. Because reality is, is we are changing away from sin into the way of godly character. And so we need to learn each and every day not to pass blame, but to take ownership in what we have done and begin to have that, that, that Holy Spirit begin in us to transform us into God's character. And John 5, 14 goes on. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, this may be a little striking to you, but here's what I will say about this idea of sin and physical circumstances or, uh, or being sick. Physical circumstances and being sick and ill are not always a direct consequence of your sin. But sometimes they are. Here's what I could tell you. You probably do not know if they are direct consequence of your actions. Because all illness is a direct consequence of sin in general, of everyone's sin. Sometimes you're ill and not well because of other people's sin upon you. The reality, Jesus is saying, look at, there is reality is that sometimes your illness is a reason is because of your sin, but you do not know. And I can never tell you, no one can ever tell you that. And if someone did, be very careful. Be very careful. We have Job's friends who actually tried to encounter him with that. That didn't go so well for them. Here's the point that Jesus is trying to make, though. He says, sin no more. You are well. Sin no more. The invalid thought 38 years in bed was a terrible consequence, was a terrible circumstance. And Jesus is saying, there's something worse than that. There's a worse consequence than being invalid for 38 years. And so he tells him, he kills him the warning, sin no more. Sin no more. Because what is the worst consequence? Eternal death. Eternal death. And this person is so spiritually blind, he doesn't even see. He doesn't even want to know who the one that healed him is. The, the chief issue for the invalid, the chief sin was his idolatry. He's not worshiping. He's not recognizing Jesus for who he is even after he healed him. This begins like, we get this uh, concept of, from Rosio Butterfield's book, uh, Sin versus Sins, right? And so 
as, as there's, a, there's sin capital S, and sin capital S, that everyone's problem in this world is idolatry. We worship after other gods besides God. Our heart is not turned to him. We don't focus on him. We don't see him. We don't recognize him. We worship other gods. For our martyr culture, that's mostly we worship ourselves or other things else. That's the lost. We're lost. For you and I that found that see Jesus, that worship him, right? Then we have all these other things, sins that are the consequence of our idolatry. And it manifests itself in a multitude of ways that violates God's character. And man, it's very specific. And each one of us is radically different in that way. And maybe we struggle with all those different sins, but the root problem is idolatry or not connected to God or not connected to life. I, I love this imagery because as Christians, right, we ought not to focus on the symptom of sins for those who do not know God. Because their sin, just like ours, is idolatry. So we ought to approach them and tell them who God is, show them who God is, introduce them to who God is. Within the church, we help each other with the symptoms of sin, always knowing that the root cause is our idolatry. And so we help each other, point us out, because we know that God is transforming us out of that. We don't point out the sins of the world. We point out the sin of the world. And we point out the sins in us, realizing that the, sin, the root cause is our continued idolatry. What does this man immediately do? Immediately do after Jesus encounters them, after Jesus now introduces himself in a certain way. What does he do after he tells them to sin no more? He goes and snitches on Jesus. He snitches. He doesn't worship Jesus. He has no clue. He is worried about protecting his own physical life. From the Pharisees' perspective, or from the Jews' perspective, what is worse? The man who breaks the Sabbath or the man who encourages others to break their rules about the Sabbath. I mean, one man breaking, they contain. But a man who's continuing to challenge their authority, challenge their rules and tradition, that man is much more dangerous. There is two things in this text that irritate them and set them off. We're really just going to deal with one today, and the next, next week we'll deal with the second one. The first one is Jesus was encouraging breaking their Sabbath rules. The second thing we get in verse 18 is that he's claiming equality with God. He's claiming to be God. Jesus in the New Testament, in every gospel, reclarifies, recalibrates the understanding of the law. Particularly the purpose in this morning today of the Sabbath. As sinners, I said before, right, we are legalistic. We want just a to-do list. Tell me what I have to do that's just enough to fulfill the requirement, the obligation in which I owe you God. Do you hear that statement? There is nothing you can do to fulfill that requirement. You and I are never capable of it. That is clear. But we want that. We want that legalism. 
We want that out. Traditionally, Sabbath observance was the, the cessation of ordinary work, setting aside a day, a time to be with God's people, which is a great paradigm, an ordinary way in which we ought to practice and observe. That Sabbath observance which God gives us as a gift to us is a good rhythm and teaches us the priority that it's not just one day that we are to be with God, but that we are to be in God's presence each and every day. So the idea that, oh, it's only the one day of the week that I have to be with God and God's people, and then I fulfilled my requirements, that is legalism. What that paradigm is teaching us to do is to realize, to reorient each and every week, to reset ourselves that every day is God's day. That every time, we can, every moment, we can be in Sabbath rest with God because he is our rest. Mark 2, 27, Jesus says it this way, that Sabbath was made for man, not for God. You see, God is not ever worn out. God never has his priorities screwed up. God is never not, not thinking about his holiness or his justice or his righteousness. God is never not, in, he's never in sin. Sabbath rest is not the cessation of work. Sabbath rest is the reprioritization and reminder of our true work. That's why we gather each and every Sunday together, is so that we may start each and every work to be reminded, what is the gospel? What is the work that we're called day in and day out to do? Moment and moment to do. What is our real work? John 5, 17, Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working. It's not the cessation of work. Maybe it's the putting aside of the ordinary work and reminding that we have a work that God has designed us and created us for and prepared us for, that we ought to walk in them in every moment. Jesus is clear in the New Testament. He is greater than the temple. He is greater than the Sabbath because he is Lord of the Sabbath. He is our Sabbath. Jesus is greater than the law. Why? Because the law is the revelation of him. The law points to him. We find our rest, we find our Sabbath, not in the observance of a single day and single moments, although those are important. And there's a reasons why we have those. We find our rest and Sabbath not in the observance of certain laws, the application of the law of, or, or legalism, that's not where we find our rest. We find our rest when we accept the invitation of Jesus into his work. Into his work. Into his recreation. We find our Sabbath and rest in Jesus. I want us to understand this and I want us to apply this so the question we have is how do we wisely live out Sabbath and apply that in our lives day by day, moment by moment? Right? The, the law and the character of God and wisdom skillfully applying this Sabbath idea of observance moment by moment in our lives. That's what takes wisdom to do that. So what does Sabbath observant 
look like or what might it look like for you and I. The first is I'm going to tell you what it doesn't look like. This is what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like bearing a grudge. It doesn't look like taking vengeance. It is, an expression, it is not an expression of violence. Leviticus 19.18 says it this way. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Right there in the Old Testament, he's already applying that love your neighbor, the application of the whole law. Love God, love your neighbor. That's the general idea of who God is and his character and the moral law. So in our passage today, if you understand that bearing a grudge, taking vengeance, plotting to kill someone, who's breaking the Sabbath? It's not the invalid. It's not Jesus. It's the rabbis and the Jews with their traditions that are serving this legalistic application. And then when they see that Jesus is encouraging people to break their legalism, they begin to plot to kill him. That is not Sabbath rest. That is not God's work that he's inviting them into. That is not living wisely. Here's what I would say Sabbath keeping looks like in your life. It looks like love. It looks like love. That's the summation of the whole moral law. That's the summation of God's character. We, we get this in uh, Galatians 5 and 22, 23, right? We talk about the fruits of the Spirit. At the end of the fruits of the Spirit, what does it say? Against such things there is no law. Why is there no law against those things? Because it's God's character. And God's character, the law is a description of God's character. So there's never a law against patience. There's never a law against love. There's never a law against peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control and gentleness. That is always Sabbath-keeping. That is always love. The law tells us to love, and that's the observant of the Sabbath. That is the work of recreation. That is why God begins to work in the Sabbath again, because he loves Love God and love your neighbor. This does not mean that we get to determine or define what love is. I want to be clear about that. This is not wishy-washy or mishmash or uh, live, and, uh, live and let live, right, and let anything go. That's not what love is. You want to learn what love is? You want to learn how to love? Here's what I would say. Read God's word. Read God's word word. One of the best questions that you can ask, or let me the primary question you can ask anytime you open up this word and read God's passage is, who is God? Who is God revealing himself to be? Because you begin to answer that question over and over again, you're going to get this holistic picture of who God is, and I'm telling you, that is love. And then you're going to learn, this is how Jesus applies Love. This is how Jesus applies his character in all these different circumstances. And it doesn't mean you get to go flipping tables whenever you want. That is a specific application for a specific moment that probably will never happen in your life. That's why it takes wisdom. Wisdom of how we actually should apply God's love and God's character in specific moments and specific characteristics. And wisdom 
It's not something that you come up to. It's God's gift to you. It's why God gives us the Holy Spirit to begin to give. It's when Solomon asks God, like, what gift can I, I want wisdom. God's like, that's a good thing to ask for. That's a good thing. It's not your wisdom. It's my wisdom. I'm going to give it to you. Jesus applies mercy and love all over the Sabbath in the New Testament because that's his work every day, every day. And it's not laborious for him. It's who he is. Jesus in the New Testament is moving Sabbath observant and understanding from a single day and a single moment or rules about it to understanding that you are united with him in character. It's character work. Our rest, our Sabbath is in him. Our lives are being transformed, sanctified into Sabbath observance, into manifesting God's character more and more in our lives, exhibiting love more and more in our lives. This does not mean that we get to skip gathering together as the church. Do not hear that like, well, that's just being legalistic, Trace. Like, no. It's not being legalistic. It's actually, there's a reason why God encourages that. As I said before, it is a paradigm that trains and teaches us and reorients us to be reminded of what actual Sabbath observance is in every moment and every day that God is with us and that we are at work with him, reprioritizing that work. Jesus observes the gathering together. But love is never neglected. Love is never sidelined because of a particular day in a particular moment. It's always appropriate. You and I are natural-born legalists. We want rules and strict boundaries so we can feel righteous and we can feel better than others. We want rules that we can reside in so we can, uh, that we're not obligated to love or care for people. And we can turn off the needs of others. This is how the world defines rest. It's not how God defines rest. The reality, living in God's character, is a lot more complicated than ceasing work. It takes daily and moment and moment dependence on him. Hear that clearly. Being in Sabbath rest requires moment by moment, daily dependence on him for wisdom on how to apply love, his character, in each and every moment, to how to live out his love. How do we live wisely in this changing rules of pandemic and rules and mandates and lack of mandates? The question I want to ask is, as some of you, as we change them, I don't know, I know we don't all agree on the, the changing rules, or we, agree, we didn't all agree on the mandates, or we didn't all agree what was going on, but here it is. How do you live light, wisely in this world in which other rules and things are applied to us? How do you live wisely in this specific moment and this specific case? I guarantee you, it's probably not asserting your right to do whatever you want. I want you to think, how do I love God and how do I love my neighbor? I, I can't give you that answer in every moment. But that's ought to be the question. It's how do I love the person in front of me? May we be a church. May we be a people that live, continue to live in these changing rules and mandates, whatever they are, whether we agree with them or not. How do we live wisely 
with each other and our neighbor? How do we live out God's character? How do we live out justice and mercy? Faithfulness. We can always be patient. We can always be kind. We can always be gentle. We can always be self-control. We can always love. There is never a law against those things. Those are always right. Our Sabbath observance begins with a daily practice of depending and trusting in God for his guidance and wisdom on how to love. Let us pray. Gracious Father, I'll be honest with you, I get frustrated. I want rules. I want strict things. Here's what you need to do exactly all the time. And uh, Lord, because I'm lazy. Lord, because I don't always love. Lord, because I'm focused more on me than you. That's my idolatry, Lord. Lord, but I know that in it I find my rest and I find joy and I find peace in living out your love. Lord, help me to seek who you are to trust and depend on you and not me and my own ability. Help us, the church, do that daily. Help, help our, our Sunday gatherings and any time we gather, be reminders to reprioritize that we are, God, is, you're inviting us into your work, into your love, into your character. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us wisdom on how to apply this love today and then tomorrow whatever our circumstance, whatever the moments, whatever temptations comes our way. We love you, Lord. Help us with our love today. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Amen.